Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. On December 4th, 2015, John Ashton Price IV, age 18, and Jacob Flynn, age 17, were killed in an automobile accident in Lakeville, Minnesota. In concluding our six-part series on the Letter to the Galatians, Richard and I take time to reflect on the tragedy of this unbearable loss in the light of St. Paul's teaching. This week's episode is offered on behalf of the entire Price family, John, Lisa, and Tom, in memory of their beloved son and brother John John and his dear friend Jacob. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 99 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week's episode comes at a very sad time for our community with the loss of two young men in a car accident just last Friday. My cousin, John Price, and his friend and fellow athlete, Jacob Flynn, were two of four kids in a terrible accident on December 4th. So we mourn their loss. Today's program is dedicated to their memory. So we want to talk today about Galatians chapter 6. This will bring our series on Galatians to a close. We've had some listener questions that we might pick up in a subsequent episode, but today we wanted to talk about Galatians 6, glean the meaning of the text, and maybe reflect a little bit on how it applies to the life of these boys and what happened and What's happening in our community? So where we left off last time, Paul emphasized that we all are free in Christ, but we, in our freedom, are bound to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And so to close out his letter, Paul emphasizes this law of love. What do we do? What are our actions supposed to be in submission to this law of love. People who defend the borders of their religious community or the borders of their families or the borders of their ethnic or national communities, but especially the borders of their religious communities, when they have a a sectarian or parochial mindset, they will talk about Galatians chapter 6 as though Paul is finally acquiescing to their mentality and saying, well, you have to take care of the church first and then people outside the church. But that's not what's happening in Galatians chapter 6. In fact, what Paul is doing is fulfilling what he said all throughout the letter, that the only one drawing borders here is the human being. The only one drawing borders is Peter, James, and John. And that if you want to talk about the household that God establishes through his instruction, it's a household with borders that are porous and keep expanding. So when he talks about the household of faith in Galatians 6, it's inclusive of those whom Peter would consider on the inside, but also of those on the outside. Well, let's not be confused here. The household of faith is the household of trust. If you have a house that runs on trust, 
then they are a house that is willing to give with full trust that God is going to provide for whatever they need. The paradigm I like to think of is Jesus says to the lawyer who asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and then responds with a different question, which is, who was neighbor to that man? And this is how we need to read what Paul is saying. How are you being a neighbor? How are you living according to faith? And when I say faith, I mean trust. How are you demonstrating in your actions that you actually trust God, that God can make decisions on who is in and who is out? And it's not up to you, and it's not according to what you can see with your fleshly eyes. I think that's it. And I think that's the key to what we've said all along, that because your eyes are mortal, they're human, they're made of flesh and blood. As Ecclesiastes taught us again and again, God sets eternity in man's heart, but man can't grasp it because you have this limitation. You're not in a position to judge, but that does not mean that you are not being judged. It's so difficult for people to wrap their minds around this that when Paul in 1 Corinthians, for example, is wielding the Torah against the community, it's not Paul who's speaking. It's the judgment of the Torah that's speaking. The function of the teacher is to convey that judgment without relent and without patience and with a pair of blinders on because the judgment is universal. That's the point. People who hear Paul talking harshly when he's preaching and say, who is Paul to judge? Misunderstand the whole system because the judgment is there and the judgment is harsh. So Paul states it universally and each individual applies it to themselves. But when you hear the universal judgment pronounced from the Amvon, all you can do is apply it to yourself. You can't hear it and say, why isn't the preacher doing it? Or why isn't my neighbor doing it? Because you don't have the ability, as you said so eloquently, to discern what is pure and what is unpure. You don't have the whole picture. You can't. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he says you cannot exceed what has been written. Paul himself will not judge. So you can't hear Paul reading the judgment and say, why is Paul judging? That's the point. The text says what the text says and you apply it. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, and the word here, I think it's important for people to hear this, you who are pneumatikos, pneumatiki, the pneumatiki are the ones who are led by the teaching. You who are not governed by your flesh and blood, by your eyeballs, as you said, but by the instruction that you hear, your duty is to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking where? To yourself. Even when you are giving the instruction, which judges all of us in order to help a brother in need, even then you have to look to your own sins, not to the sins of your brother. It's so powerful, and the system is immutable because it works better the more fiercely the word is preached. Because the more fiercely the word is preached, the harder it is for the addressee in the assembly to escape the hypocrisy of asking on what basis the preacher is being so judgmental. Once you do that, you're under the judgment of Galatians 6.1. Now, you might hear me talking and ask, Father Mark, on what basis are you saying that Paul is teaching in a spirit of gentleness? But in fact, the word in Greek means humility, praftis, 
Now, humility is often associated with gentleness because someone who is humble knows when to be gentle and when to be harsh. And when you are reading the edict of the Lord, if you are humble, you read the edict of the Lord, whether it is gentle or harsh in what it is saying, which means that when Paul is preaching against the church, he is not being gutsy or showing chutzpah or being bold. He's being humble. This is like the father when his teenage son comes home very late at night and has been drinking and the father would love to have a nice quiet meek night because he's asleep in bed but out of humility out of humility to the teaching he has to get out of bed he has to yell at his son he has to tell his son that this is not acceptable that this is not a spirit of love from the son and out of humility to the teaching, out of humility to his duty as a father, he has to not be quiet. So humility and gentleness may go together, but they may not go together. And a son or a daughter cannot discern their parents' humility when they're harsh. This is why I like the old tradition of people keeping their mouth shut when a parent was hard on their child in public. Now everybody's an expert on how other people should parent, but this is hubris. This is supreme arrogance because you want to make sure that every other parent makes their child twice a child of hell as yours. You have no right. Each one must look to themselves so that they will not also be tempted. Meaning, if you stray from the teaching, you cease to be one of the epnevmatiki, which is a very serious matter because you don't want to become katasarts, which means according to the flesh, because then you're passing away. And this is the point you were making in verse 2 about the weightier matters of the law. Now he shifts gears and he says that in doing this, your chief responsibility is to bear one another's burdens and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. It's the fulfilling of the other's burden. The child who comes home drunk, his burden is that he doesn't understand he's putting other people at risk and he's thinking only about himself. And you have to bear that burden by coming and teaching him harshly so that he learns that one way of bearing someone's burden. Another way of bearing one's burden is when you have somebody who has an insufferable wound, like you're talking about in the, the community, people who are devastated by this loss. How do you bear the burden of that loss? Everyone has a duty to fulfill the law of Christ and to end their own ego for the sake of the other one who is suffering. Now, you might do that quietly. You might do it loudly. Paul does not address the tone. James may address the tone, but Paul is not talking about the tone. Paul is talking about, are you doing it out of love of Christ? Are you doing it out of the law of Christ? Are you fulfilling the law correctly by helping the other through teaching, but that teaching that is applied to them equally turns on to you? And so out of humility, you have to be consistent only in fulfilling the law of Christ. And this shows your obedience. This shows the emasculation of your ego if you're doing it according to the text and not according to your own opinions about other people. And the funny thing is, if your brother is sinning and you bring to him the word of life looking to your own sins, not to his sins, what that does is it puts you in the same position as Christ to be judged and to suffer for the burden of your neighbor. 
This is where the rubber hits the road in the gospel. It's a very powerful statement at the outset of the conclusion of Galatians. For, Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is a metaphoric expression and a practical expression. It's metaphoric because Peter and James, in building themselves up in the flesh, put themselves in the position of being gods, of being deified in the eyes of the people, of lording their power over the people through the work of the people's hands and circumcision. This is what scripture is teaching about religion. The gods you worship are an illusion. They're passing away. Peter and James are passing away. They're according to the flesh. They are not spiritual because they put their trust in things that are passing away. So on the one hand, he's talking about the futility of religion. On the other hand, it's a very obvious statement about the human ego. The human being, we hear again and again in Ecclesiastes, imagines that he is something when he is nothing. Man's days are like grass. Like a flower of the field, he blossoms and flourishes. But the wind passes over it and he is gone and the place thereof knows him no more. That is the truth of human existence. And no amount of talking and rationalizing, no amount of philosophizing or theologizing can erase the truth of man's existence as it has been established by God. And this lesson is so clear, so painfully clear in the death of these two boys. Because when young men who are so full of life and so loved by so many people are gone in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, they disappeared from the earth like that. You are confronted with the reality of Paul's statement. You are confronted with the reality of the psalm, which is expressing the reality of Isaiah. It's Isaiah who tells us that man's days are as grass. All flesh is grass. Everything passes away, but the word of God abides forever. And it is the word of instruction to love. And the funny thing is about verse 3, if you think you're something... When you are nothing, you are incapable of fulfilling the commandment to love. And this goes to Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes kept reminding us that however much of a something you are, you're going to end up in the same place as everyone else who's dead, whether a dog or a lion. It's always going to be the same place that you end up. So if you think you're something, it's deceptive. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. And this is a nice way of saying, if you take a good look at how you're acting, you have no reason to boast. He just said at the end of chapter 5, let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. Because if you are behaving that way, it's clear that you're not following the instruction of Jesus Christ in verse 2. If each one boasts in regard to himself alone, and if each one realizes that he is nothing, no one has cause for boasting except, as Paul said, in the cross of the Lord, by which he was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to him. And the distinction here is that when you are boastful, challenge or envy one another, all are comparing yourself to someone else. 
boastful, I have something that's better than what you have. Challenge, I think I should have what you have. Envying, darn it, I wish I had what he had. It's always comparing your work with someone else's work. You have your eye on their work and not on your own work. You only have the right to look at your own work. Even someone who has lost something very precious, a son, looks at the person with a son. I only wish I had a son like that. But you're in a different situation. That's how it is. You know, my kids, how come she has to walk the dog hardly at all and I have to walk the dog three times in a row? I don't know. Why? Are we going to have this discussion? Because it doesn't sound very fruitful. The work is given to us and all you can say is, did you walk the dog when it was your time? For each one will bear his own burden. Again, this touches on the commandment in Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. Because the way the world works... We all, at the end, are left holding the bag for our own mistakes, and we're left holding the bag for our own suffering. And in the end, no matter how many people are with us, we all die alone. And Paul, as we've said many times, is filling that void with love. He's saying, yes, it's true, everyone has to bear their own burden, but wouldn't it be nice if we, in submission to the Torah, allowed God to create a community in our midst in which people were not left alone, in which people did not have to stumble alone or face accountability for their mistakes alone, where they could count on their neighbor not to mock them and deride them and to exclude them, but to embrace them in their difficulties. It reminds me of Job and how his friends came to visit him when he was suffering to explain why exactly he was suffering, which was not very helpful to Job because why he was suffering was not helpful. The fact was he was suffering. Job had to bear his burdens. He had no choice but to bear his burdens. But his friends had a choice whether to bear Job's burdens or not. And this is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. Job has to bear it. The families of these boys have to bear it. They don't have a choice. But those around them do have a choice. Will they bear them for them? Will they be there not to explain or judge, like you said, Father, but will they be there to uphold these burdens, to carry these burdens for the other? The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And this is a Eucharistic statement, meaning that when Paul is reading the judgment of the Torah, which is a harsh judgment against the household of faith, you should respond not by saying, who does he think he is, Isn't he being arrogant by speaking this way? Or does it really apply to me? Or why is he being hard with me? All of that I am something talk. You have to purge that and say thank you the way a child says thank you. Say thank you for the fact that Paul was willing to scold you with the teaching because he's not the one scolding. You have to submit to God in this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And here, this is another beautiful expression that has practical implications and metaphoric implications. On the level of metaphor, if you sow God's teaching, you will reap whatever God's teaching produces. Whatever. It might be suffering. It might be rejoicing. It doesn't matter. It will do what it does. The seed functions independently of the soil. Whatever you teach, 
you're going to reap the fruit that comes from that teaching. Right. If you go the route of James and Peter and you teach something worldly, something that's passing away, you are going to reap death from what you teach. And he's mentioned in the last chapter what you get. You get divisions, you get envying, you get boasting. That's what you reap when you sow a law that's fleshly. Well, this is the practical implication. Because on a very simple level, if you don't take care of your neighbor, or if you go further and are cruel to your neighbor, when someone responds to your cruelty, if you are under scripture, you have to assume that that cruelty is God's judgment against you. You aren't suffering because of a punishment. This I want to make clear. Sometimes people say, oh, if this bad thing happened to you, it's because you must have sinned. I mean, this is how Job's friends talk. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that it's the teaching that you sow. What is the teaching that you sow? Not did you do bad things, did you do good things, because we know that all people do bad things. The practical implication draws upon the mechanism of judgment in the prophets. If you fail to follow God's commandment and you don't walk according to his precepts, and you injure your neighbor in some way, either because of apathy or abuse. They're both the same. They're both the same. You can injure your neighbor simply by not loving them or ignoring them, let alone by declaring war on them or doing some act of cruelty. When you face the consequences of that behavior, if you're under scripture, you have to assume that it is God's judgment against you. Dr. King used to talk about this correctly and scripturally and faithfully when he would explain the difference between earned suffering and unearned suffering. Earned suffering is suffering that falls upon you because of your lack of faithfulness to God's commandment to love the neighbor. You can transform earned suffering by responding to it faithfully in love, but it's judgment. Unearned suffering, like the suffering a mother has to bear when she loses her son in a senseless car accident. Unearned suffering is not judgment against the one who suffers. It's God's judgment, but it's a judgment for the sake of the world. It's given as an opportunity to bear witness to the cross, to show others how to love, to show others how to be obedient, to show others how to give yourself over to God's instruction with complete trust. And all suffering is an opportunity to teach that, but unearned suffering has a special place in the prophets. The suffering of Jesus was unearned, because once you understand that suffering is unearned in Galatians, then you understand that prosperity is also unearned. And you begin to see that everything in life happens because it happens, and that it's the roll of the dice. And what differentiates people in God's eyes isn't what happens to them, but what they do about what happens to them and how they defer its meaning to God's instruction. Because it's the instruction ultimately that sows life and hope. It's a very serious matter. And God is not mocked. There is a consequence for not loving. Because while a car rolling over in Lakeville is something that happens that we have no control over. We are responsible for and we have control over school shootings. We have control over acts of terrorism because they are a response to our withdrawal, our inability to love, to take care of others. 
you can say what you want about the shootings in California and comfort yourself that it was a problem with Islamic terrorism, but it was a kid from Chicago. Who didn't love that young man? Who allowed that young man to be abandoned so that he would feel so lonely that he would do something like that? That he would seek comfort from some kind of twisted ideology? He's no different than the kid who shot up a school because he thought girls didn't like him when he was in college. It's the same problem. Those things happen because we are not bearing one another's burdens and God is not mocked. And there's no solution except the love of the cross. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, which means decay in the grave. You put your faith in something that's temporary, all you're going to get is the result of something temporary, which is nothing. Again, it's about confusing things that are nothing for things that are something. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap everlasting life. And this is the life that comes from God's teaching. It's the life that only love can produce. Only love has the power to break down the boundaries established by those who wield the power of death in Galatians. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And this is classic agrarian metaphor in the New Testament. What Paul is saying is that you do as a slave is commanded in the Gospels. This beautiful, beautiful line in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, where Jesus says, no one thanks their slave for doing their duty. You don't pat them on the back when they come in from the field. You ask, where's my dinner? Because the slave has a job to do. And in Galatians, we were told that everyone who puts themselves under the teaching of Jesus Christ is a slave in Abraham's household. Well, if you're a slave in Abraham's household, you have to keep working with no hope of a reward without growing weary. Just because you're not seeing the results of your loving actions, of your submission to Christ, it doesn't mean that you are working in vain. You have to keep working while you still have strength. And this is the meaning of the agrarian metaphor. A farmer in the ancient world sows and sows and sows and sows without chemicals, without machinery, without all kinds of backup plans and redundancy. Even now they're at the mercy of the weather, but especially in the ancient world. If it didn't rain, they didn't have sprinklers. Even in Egypt, if the water level in the Nile went down, all the irrigation in the world isn't going to end the drought. There could be pestilence, there could be disease. You had no control. And the end of the season was way on the other end of all this work and labor you had to commit to. There are no guarantees in life, is what Paul is saying here. But that should not cause you to grow weary, because your rejoicing is in the moment, in the work that you're doing now for the sake of the cause. You can only rejoice in that moment, though, if you're not living for yourself. If you're an individualist from North America, this makes no sense because your life is about you. It begins and ends with what you want for you. But if you are a slave in God's household, you are slaving for the sake of the human race. You are fighting for the cause of all creation, which was what God established in Genesis. And that, if you trust God's instruction, should be enough to give you the energy and the enthusiasm not to grow weary. And I think the trust here is the central point because man has eternity in his heart but cannot grasp it. You have to trust that on the eternal scale, I'm doing the right thing, even if you can't understand how it's going to work out. 
So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And here, without going into a lot of detail again, we talked about this. He just told you over the last five and a half chapters that the household of faith is inclusive of the nations. So the all people doesn't mean everyone who's not in the church. The all people means the few people that you haven't gotten to yet if you're listening carefully to what I'm saying. Because this is inclusive of everybody. In Ezekiel, which is Paul's reference, the God of Abraham is the God above all the gods. So it's not a question of whether or not everyone is under the God of Abraham. It's a question about whether or not they know it or not because of how you've treated them. Not how you've programmed them with your evangelization campaign. People say that they want to evangelize, what they're doing is proselytizing. But they'll know that God is their father when you treat them like a brother. This is the meaning of Galatians. It's the meaning of circumcision, which they have forsaken, and it is the meaning of Galatians. They will know that Abraham is their father when you put your arms around them. See with what large letters I, Paul, I inserted Paul to emphasize that he's grabbing the manuscript from the hand of the scribe who would write in very fine, neat, small letters. He's grabbing it and he's printing. Paul's not a professional writer. And so now the letters are larger. He's sprawling across the page. I now am signing it with my own hand. I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Because you build yourself up with worldly deeds the way someone puts money away in the bank so that you can have security and victory and success. And that's not what's promised in the gospel. No, they want to be surrounded by the correct kind of people who are all doing things the correct kind of way, and then people won't say nasty things about them. They want to be surrounded by the sorts of people that the world would find acceptable. Rather than saying, we want the losers, we want the cursed, we want those who do not follow things the way that they are supposed to follow them because we want to bear their burdens, because we want to fulfill the law of Christ. This is the difference. Are you trying to look upright? Are you trying to surround yourself with people that will help your reputation? Or do you put your reputation aside and just do what is correct by bearing another's burdens? For those who are circumcised, do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast. Paul just got done saying, don't boast about anything except the crucifixion. But they want to flee and run away from the crucifixion because they want to be comfortable. And they want to brag and boast on the back of your flesh, meaning they want to use you in a pyramid scheme to build themselves up. And in doing so, they are shutting you out of the kingdom, number one. Number two, they're giving you a raw deal outside of the kingdom because they're at the top of the pyramid and they're sitting on your back. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Meaning that when Paul stands up and preaches scripture fiercely, he is not pointing to himself as the reference. He is pointing to the text as his reference, the letter from God. In other words, Paul, when he stands up with authority to talk about the consequences of the crucifixion, which is to preach the failure of the cross, is not bragging. He's not bragging, A, because it's not his teaching, and B, because the teaching is counterintuitive. What is he standing on? I mean, imagine 
what an idiot Paul appeared to the Roman patricians who taught in a system based on honor and strength and glory. And he comes to them on behalf of a thief who was executed outside the walls of Jerusalem in shame for treason against Caesar, a loser, someone who people called a king but who was actually in worldly terms a failure. This is what Paul is boasting in. This is what Peter and James are afraid of. This is what they run away from in the Gospels. The true strong person is the one who says, you and your rules are dead to me and I am dead to those rules. I don't care what your rules say. You are free to completely ignore me. The only thing I care about is loving others. So forget your rules. Forget your concepts. Forget your way of looking at things. All I care about is loving others. This is what Christ showed. By being crucified, he's like, Caesar, you can do what he wants. Pilate, do what you want. Forget your self-justification for turning your back on people who love you. Forget all your excuses and all your reasons for shutting people out or walking away from them. They're all from the devil. Try this for practice. Every time you think of loving your neighbor and going the extra mile for your neighbor and you come up with a reason, say, I don't care about that reason. That reason is dead to me. I will no longer follow that reason ever. Oh, I don't know if I have enough time. Forget it. Time is dead to you. Uh, You know, I really need to go to work. Work is dead to you. Oh, but there's a piano recital. I have to go to the piano. The piano recital is dead to you. Everything is dead. Oh, but I should be circumcised. Circumcision is dead to you. This is what Paul is saying. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new birth of God's household as it was intended in the law and the prophets to be a community that encompasses all of creation. And that doesn't even just mean the human beings. It means all life. Everything is precious to God. As Father Paul Tarazi often reminds us, God didn't make man in Genesis. He made life, of which the human being is a part. And we would do well to remember that, that ultimately Scripture is still struggling with us and against us to get us just to love other human beings. But that's just the beginning of what love means. It means the care for everyone and everything with absolute discipline and seriousness and severity in our discipline. Because if we take seriously the admonition that we are nothing, life is something, but we are nothing, then we would approach the question of life and how we behave in a fundamentally different way. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. And I disagree with some translations because they try to make it a conjunction and say that the them in the first part of the sentence is group A and the Israel of God is group B, but this is not correct. Those who walk by this rule are the Israel of God which is bad news for Peter and James, which means they don't have to go get their baptismal certificate in Jerusalem in order to be a part of the church. Sorry to give you the bad news. That's the deal. Once you understand this, you can see Jesus Christ where there is no belief and see the absence of Jesus Christ where everybody is pouring holy oil on their forehead and making the sign of the cross. And you have to work at developing the ability 
to discern the function of Jesus Christ in the world. Neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision. So Paul is not advocating for circumcision or uncircumcision. He's saying, the whole debate is dead to me. The whole discussion about, should we be doing this? Should we be doing that? Paul says, I'm dead to it. It's dead to me. We only love. And if one loves, then there will be peace and mercy upon the Israel of God when they actually fulfill this law, which we see in Zechariah when God talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. The nations are envious because people just treat each other well. The church is not where you draw ecclesial boundaries. The church is wherever the gospel is preached. And we know from Paul's teaching that the gospel is lived unknowingly more often than it is lived knowingly by those who claim to profess it and embrace it. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. I'm done arguing. Chalas, I've had enough. I don't want to hear it. For I bear on my body not the fleshly mark of circumcision, but the mark of Jesus Christ, which is something you can't see under a microscope. It's a spiritual mark. It's the mark of the teaching on man's heart, which means the mark of the teaching inscribed on his gray cells. And here he ends the letter classically. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. And as we said in session one of the series on Galatians, the day of peace is the day of judgment. So Paul begins his letters always by saying grace and peace, but he ends systematically with grace, which means that there is hope. There is still time before the day of peace. Now we know from the death of these children, these young men, that the day of peace comes quickly when you least expect it. But if you're hearing the letter, it's still the day of grace, which means you're still on the path. And to those who care about these boys who died and who really want to bear witness to the light that their life brought into the world for all of us, you have to take this opportunity of the day of grace seriously and live every day with extra zeal and extra commitment and extra dedication to the needs of others. And in doing so, you bear witness to these young men and you give hope in their name that the cause of life is not abandoned by God. If there's any purpose for this death, it would be that it would help us to reprioritize, to remember that we are dead to the world and its rules and its categories and its prestige, but only live for the law of Christ in order to love others and bear their burdens. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.